0: Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been doing a series on the church. It's called, as these boards show up front, Upon This Rock, because Jesus said, Upon This Rock, I will build my church. And in our first study, we began in Matthew 16 with that passage where Jesus promised to build his church. We discovered the meaning of the church, gathering together. We're different than the world. We gather to glorify God. In our second and third studies, we looked at the prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17 for his church, what Jesus wants his church to be. Then we looked at our approach in worship. What kind of an attitude should we have when we gather together as the body of Christ? And then we looked at Philippians chapter 2 in our fifth study, at what it is to get along with other people, and now we turn to First Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look beginning in verse 4, not all the way through the whole chapter, but um, but sections of it. It was uh, David who said concerning the human body that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Living Bible puts it a little bit differently. He says we are wonderfully complex. And boy, we are. Our bodies are our engineering marvels of God. God has created your body with about 30 trillion cells. Give or take a few thousand or million. 30 trillion cells. Inside each cell is a nucleus and inside each nucleus is a world of activity including Twenty-three pairs of chromosomes, one set that you got from mom, one set that you got from dad. And those uh, chromosomes, that DNA, scrunched up like a tape, densely coated, compacted information, dictates how every cell of your body will operate from birth till death. What color of hair you'll have, um, at least for a while, um... What body type you will have, how tall you will be, etc. If you were to take that genetic information inside the nucleus of one of the cells of your body, you were to translate it into written information like in a book. You could fill with the information out of one cell of your body a library with 4,000 volumes. That's how much information is in one single cell. How big of a room do you suppose you would need if you were to translate all 30 trillion cells of your body? Well, truth is, you could fill the Grand Canyon. You could fill it 40 times. The Grand Canyon is between 3 and 20 miles wide and 200 miles long. You could fill the Grand Canyon 40 times with the translated information of every cell of your body. So it's sort of an understatement to say we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This morning, however, I turn your attention to 1 Corinthians 12 because it speaks about another body, the body of Christ. And the name of this message is How to Build a Beautiful Body. It's interesting that Paul speaks of the body of Christ, uses that metaphor. By the way, one of his favorite analogies is the body of Christ. Jesus being the head and us being the different members. And he speaks about that to the church at Corinth. Because the church at Corinth was a fractured body. It was a broken body. It was not a beautiful body. But this morning, I'm going to give you, out of 1 Corinthians 12, four Let's call them body-building tips. Uh, Things that will help all of us to build a strong church body, the body of Christ. Beginning in verse uh, 4 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, is the first tip on building a strong church. And this is it. Recognize the variety that's in the church. Each person is not to be like every other person. There are differences that we're to celebrate. Verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, or you might say a variety of gifts, but it's the same spirit. There are differences or variety of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But one and the same Spirit works all of these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. It's not one gift. It's not one ministry. It's not one style. It's not one group. It's not one denomination that God works through. God is a God of variety. He loves variety, and we ought to as well. Imagine what it would be like if at Christmas... You got exactly the same gift from every person who gave you a gift. That would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? You think, what is this, a joke? Socks and underwear from everyone? What if every day of your year were exactly the same as the previous day? Ever seen Groundhog's Day? Guy wakes up, Bill Murray wakes up, alarm clock glows off, same song plays, same set of circumstances or what if every place on earth looked identical to every other place on earth that'd be pretty boring wouldn't it where would you go on vacation so god has put a, even in his creation variety and so it is in the body of christ there are a variety of different people with different backgrounds with as it says here different gifts So one thing we should not do as a church is try to put people into a spiritual mold. And I fear sometimes we love to do that. We want to save them and stick them in a mold. You are to think this way, you are to like these songs, and you must read from this version of the Bible. And then I'll feel better about you. No, there is variety in the mind and heart of God and in the body of Christ. Somebody sent me this little quip. It says there are 200 million Americans, 86 million are over 65, and 76 million are under 21. That leaves only 38 million to do the work. But 6 million are in the armed forces, that leaves 32 million to do the work. But 6 million are on welfare, so that only leaves 26 million to do the work. But 15 million work for the government, so that leaves 11 million to do the work. 10 million are in school, that leaves 1 million to do the work, but 750,000 are disabled or sick, so that leaves 250,000 left to do the work. Last week, there were 249,998 people in jail, so that leaves only two people to do the work. And since you don't do very much, no wonder I'm so tired. (laughs) The truth is, if... The variety of gifts and gifted people would be involved. No one would be tired. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. There's differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities or varieties of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. You can take two, or for that matter, five people with the same spiritual gift And it comes out and is expressed differently because there's different manifestations of the same gift. That's beautiful variety. If you were to give Chuck Swindoll and Raul Reese the same passage of Scripture and have them preach a sermon on it, I guarantee you it would come out different. It's manifest differently. Same with evangelism. One might have a gift of an evangelist like Billy Graham and stand in front of thousands of people and preach the gospel and feel very much at home. You give another person the opportunity to stand in front of a crowd of people and he will shake, he'll quiver. He doesn't like being in front of a crowd. Though he might have the gift of an evangelist, uh, that person might like to knock on the door and meet somebody they've never met before and just cold turkey without a relationship share the gospel. Not everybody can do that. I know some people who would knock on the door and then pray, Dear Jesus, may nobody be home, I pray. (laughs) Because they're afraid to do that. But in a casual setting, over a cup of coffee or writing a letter to someone, they might adequately and powerfully share the gospel. So we can never confine God to a box, to a method, to a style, to a group, to an organization, to a denomination. And by the way, that is shown dramatically in the way Jesus himself healed people. Did Jesus ever heal people exactly the same way every time? No, sometimes he would speak a word, other times he would lay his hand on someone. On one occasion he touched the person twice before the healing took. On another occasion he actually took some dirt and spat on the dirt and made a mud ball and wiped it on the guy's eye. I don't see healing evangelists on television trying that. Different methods, different styles at different times. In verse 11, we are told who is controlling the variety. But one and the same spirit works all of these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Ah, this tells me the church is all about what he wills, what he wants. That I can't say it's my church. You can't say it's your church. It's his church. And thus church isn't about getting my will done, but me participating, getting his will accomplished. He is the one that controls the variety. Here's a second bodybuilding tip. If number one is recognize variety, then number two is emphasize unity. Look at the next verse, verse 12. As the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one body. Notice the emphasis in the next few verses on that idea of oneness. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. We are to recognize the beautiful, diverse variety in any given group, the body of Christ. At the same time, though we recognize the variety... We are to emphasize unity, and here's why. If we just emphasize the first part and not the second part, the body will be out of whack. It's going to malfunction. Because if I'm celebrating and emphasizing variety, but I don't say we all have to be going in the same direction, then potentially every member could be out there doing its own thing, creating division rather than unity. Okay. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ, and who's the head? Christ. He's the head. Now think of your human body. You have a brain. We know this to be true. Your brain tells the rest of the body parts what to do and when to do it. And if everything is working well and functioning well, it's a smooth, unified set of activities. So Christ is the brain. He's the one telling the hand, the leg, uh, the foot, uh, all of the different parts of the body what to do when. He's giving the orders. The Holy Spirit is sort of like the nervous system. Taking the message from the brain, empowering, enabling, and transmitting that message to all of the parts of the body for a smooth function. When your body operates the way it ought to operate. It is a wonderful example of teamwork. Message goes to the brain from the stomach. I'm hungry. I'm empty. Fill me up. So the brain sends the message to the legs. Walk to the barbecue. And then the nose smells the onions. The eye spots the burger. The hand grabs it all and... It's all working together. But what if the leg says, I'm not going? You see, the brain is controlling and all the members are cooperating. If one or more of those members decides not to cooperate, you got a problem. It's called a disease. And a diseased body is no fun. A healthy body is wonderful. A diseased body is not. I've always pretty much had a healthy body. I thank God for that in the uh, 30 years of my life. No, I'm much older than that. (laughs) And I never tell a lie. Um, But one evening after a Bible study years ago, I ate this burrito. And I was driving uh, home from Santa Fe where I did this study at. And uh, I felt sort of sick to my stomach. And I was with a buddy who had a burrito. And I said, was there something in the food that you ate? Because I'm not feeling very good right now. He said, no, I feel great. But through the course of the drive, it was about an hour drive, I felt sicker and sicker. I went home, went to bed, woke up at 2 in the morning, doubled over. I couldn't move. Something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. My wife was out of town. I had to call my friend who took me to the hospital. They ran tests. And they came to me. The doctor said, we've given you several tests, and we've determined something's wrong with you. We don't know what it is, though. But could I have your medical insurance card to make sure that we have proper payment for all these services rendered? No, they didn't know what was wrong with me. So they kept me in the hospital for a few more days, ran more tests, couldn't figure out what's wrong with me. Finally, a surgeon walked in, this young gal who said, since all of the tests that we have run don't tell us anything specific, we're going to have to, well, I'm going to do exploratory surgery, she said. If the white count, because I had some infection, the leukocyte count doesn't go down by tomorrow morning, I'm going to cut you open. I said, oh, really? She says, oh, yes, oh, really. But, she said, we want to do one more test to, to determine if we can figure out what this is. I said, well, well what is the name of that test? She says, well, it's called a barium enema. Now, I have, a, I have a medical background. I know exactly what that is. I was on the giving end. Now I was on the receiving end. And as I was lying on the x-ray table right before the exam, I thought of what Job said when he said, that which I have feared has come upon me. <laughs> it came upon me at that moment. And it was all because one member of my body was not cooperating. And to this day, To this day, I still don't know which one it is. Because my white count went down, I didn't have to have exploratory surgery, I was released from the hospital, and the doctor said, I need to see you in a one week. And I didn't show up. Anybody who wants to cut me open, I'm not going back to. (laughs) But for that period of time, I'm wondering, which one of you isn't cooperating with the rest of the body? Oh, there was individuality. Oh, there was variety happening. But there wasn't unity. I had a friend. I grew up with this friend for part of my early life. And I watched what the ravaging disease called multiple sclerosis can do to a human body. He was healthy. He was strong. He was vibrant. But then this disease progressed. And his motions weren't smooth anymore. They were jerky and uncoordinated. And the doctors tell us that the cerebral cortex and the spinal cord develop hardened patches on them so that the the messages don't transmit. They're impeded. There's a hindrance. So instead of the message getting across to the part of the body and it functioning in a smooth, wonderful fashion, paralysis will eventually set in. You know, when the world looks at the church So often that's what they see, not wow, what a wonderful, beautiful group, smooth operation. The head is coordinating and they're not doing their own thing. They're doing all together the Lord's work. They see a spastic, paralyzed kind of a body. And it can be quite discouraging to so many of them, by the way. One of Satan's biggest traps, and understand it is a trap, is to get us focused inward and fighting one another so that all of our energy is taken off fighting him, the real enemy. And then we're so tired because we've been fighting each other and beating each other up. We don't have time to fight the real enemy in this world, which is the devil who's sending people to hell every day. So it's important that the body recognize variety, emphasize unity. And here's a third bodybuilding tip. Maximize equality. Verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, now I want you to picture literally what he's saying here. What if your ear started talking and said, hey, I'm an ear and I'm not an eye? I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. One of the reasons that church groups malfunction is that certain gifted individuals, let's just call them gifts in the body, are pedestalized. They're they're placed on a higher pedestal. Ooh, now that gift is more important than those gifts. And whenever that happens, there is malfunction. Now think of the first two points. Variety and unity. Um, If you have unity without variety, you have uniformity. That's boring. If you have variety without unity, you have anarchy. Everybody's doing his own thing. The answer then is this third element, equality. All of the members of the body, though they're different one from another, are all very important. Equality. Equality. What does Paul do to emphasize this point? He takes a couple parts of the body that are visible, um, usually seen first, and compares them with a couple parts of the body that are are rarely noticed. You notice people's hands, especially if they're Italian, they move them a lot. We shake hands, we don't shake feet, we cover our feet. Um, We work with our hands, we wave hands. You ever see a person stick his foot out the window and wave feet? No, it doesn't happen. Though we need our feet and our legs to transport us. One part of the body, the hand, is more readily seen than the other part being the foot or the leg. Same with the eye versus the ear. One of the first things we notice about each other if we meet each other is the eyes. How are the eyes looking? What color are the eyes? When I first met my wife, Lenya, I was struck by her eyes, her eyebrows, the the roundness of her eyes, the color of them. And I noticed that, and I thought, beautiful eyes. I don't remember noticing her ears or being taken in by her ears. I didn't walk away going, great lobes, man. (laughs) Because truth be told, ears are ugly, but we need them. They're fashioned that way to direct sound, to maximize our environment so that we can understand and perceive where we're at. So all of those are necessary. So he emphasizes it in verse 17. Here's his point. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? I don't know about you when you read the Bible, if you really just stop and... Let it soak in, what the author is saying. But I have, and I'm picturing in my mind when I read this verse, a five-foot-seven eyeball. And I'm looking at it going, that is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my mind. What good is it? What do you do with a five-foot-seven eyeball? Put it in the back of your car and drive it around so it can see things? (laughs) It doesn't have a mouth, so it couldn't tell you what it sees. It doesn't have an ear, so it can't perceive its environment in an audible tone. What good is it? That's his point. To have one part of a body emphasized over all the other parts is pretty useless. We do this whenever we put certain gifts on pedestals. And we say, that is an important gift, more so than those. That person is much more valuable than those people. We do a couple of things when we, when we do that. Number one, we set people up for failure. Anytime you put somebody on a pedestal, they're going to fall. They're bound to fall. And the further you push them up, the greater they have to fall. Number two, you're sending a message to the rest of the church that you're really not all that important. In fact, they'll walk away going, well, I'm, I'm definitely not a hand and I'm definitely not an eye, so I must not be part of the body. Because they love to emphasize just those gifts to the, um, to the neglect of the rest of them. Back in uh, March of 1981... Ronald Reagan was shot by John Hinckley Jr. How many of you remember that incident? Ronald Reagan was placed in the hospital for a couple of weeks. The chief executive officer of the most powerful nation on earth was shot. Of course he survived, but he was hospitalized. Question. Did the United States of America shut down during that time? Of course not. It went on, right? We have plenty of people in the cabinet doing the work. But, What if all of the garbage collectors in America suddenly stopped? Excuse me, sanitary engineers. That's better. What if they all stopped doing their job? It happened in Philadelphia a few years ago. They went on strike, and it really shut the city down. We're told because of that, they studied it since then. If all of the sanitary engineers slash garbage collectors were to go on strike, within three weeks, America would come to a screeching halt. Isn't that something? Question now, who's more important? The president of the United States of America or a bunch of garbage collectors? Answer, everyone is important. The president is certainly an important person and has an important job. Garbage collectors are also very important, and they have important jobs. See, unnoticed doesn't mean unimportant. Unnoticed doesn't necessarily mean unimportant. Look at verse 23. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need, but God has composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. You can lose a hand. For that matter, you can lose an eye. You can lose a foot, and you'll live. You can't lose a heart. You can't lose a pituitary gland. You only got one. But do you ever think about a pituitary? It's unseen. It's unnoticed. You ever go up to your friend and go, you know, I've just been thinking, how's your pituitary? <laughs> just something that just I've been thinking a lot about. You don't think about those parts unless something goes wrong with them parts. And when that problem comes up and the attention is drawn to that part that was up to this point unseen, then we have a problem. Unnoticed does not mean unimportant. In fact, I would say most parts of a healthy body, a healthy church, are unseen. They're unnoticed. It's those prayer warriors, it's those servants behind the scenes that keep everything going so smoothly. And there is an equality of importance. Here's the fourth and final point, and we'll close with this. We are to minimize self-sufficiency. Minimize self-sufficiency. Let's go over them. Recognize variety, different people, different gifts in the church. But we emphasize the unity. We have one goal, one purpose to glorify Christ. We are to maximize equality. Some are not better than others. We're all at the same level before the foot of the cross. And we must minimize self-sufficiency. Now here is where American Christians need to learn a lesson because we are a self-sufficient culture. It's bred in us. But I draw your attention out of verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Sometimes I'll meet a person who will say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus Christ, but... I don't go to church regularly, for you see, I don't believe in organized religion. I don't need the church to grow as a Christian. That, my friends, is a lie. God did not build us to be independent. He fashioned us to become interdependent. For us to thrive, we can't ever say, I don't need you. Truth is, oh, we need each other deeply. We are to be integrated in each other's lives. You never would have heard the gospel unless somebody would have told you. You say, oh, no, that's not true. I heard it on the radio. I watched a television program. Yeah, but some person was speaking and broadcast that, and other people behind the scenes put it together so that you could hear it. You would never have grown in Christ unless some other person would have helped you grow in Christ. In Acts chapter 6, there was a crisis. In the church, the first church, the early church, the church in Jerusalem, there was a split between two groups of ladies. Some were Greeks and some were Hebrew-speaking. And this division was brought to the attention of the apostles. Uh, You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. I'll read it to you in Acts chapter 6. What happened? It says that this problem was manifested, and the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip Prochorus, and a whole list of names I'm not going to mention, but all of these Greek-speaking guys, whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them, and the word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. Spiritual problem met by spiritual people with spiritual priorities. What did they do? Number one, they recognized variety. Not all of us are apostles. There's got to be some people here that have this gift. Let's find them. Number two, they emphasized unity. For it says, we're not going to leave the word of God and serve tables. Find seven from among you, not from the outside. Let's find some expert from out there to bring them in. How about those from among you? There's a unity in the body. Number three, they maximized equality. The seven were chosen by the group, but the 12 apostles got behind them and said, yes, we agree with you. We're on the same page. We're all at the same level. And the ministry went on. And number four, they minimized self-sufficiency. It says the saying pleased the whole multitude. Everybody said, okay, great. That's the plan. We'll go with it. If that's the decision made and that's the seven that the body decided on and that's what the 12 said, let's go for it. Not one of them said, well, I didn't get my way, so I'm leaving. No, no, no. They minimize self-sufficiency. There was a guy named Dr. Harry F. Harlow. He was a researcher University of Wisconsin. His research was uh, the practices and the sociology of baby monkeys. He was trying to decide how humans uh, need each other or how we live based upon the uh, behavior of these monkeys. So he took uh, eight baby monkeys and he put them in cages and he used different variables to determine their behavior. And he noticed something interesting, that these baby monkeys seemed to be attached emotionally, to cloth pads lying at the bottom of their cages. That these baby monkeys would caress them, would cuddle them, and treat the cloth pads like a child would treat a teddy bear. He decided to take terry cloth and make a surrogate mother. A little monkey that looked like a mother monkey somehow, however he constructed it, put a light bulb behind her, a rubber nipple out front, and a feeding tube so that the baby monkeys could nurse and feed at this surrogate terracloth mother. Then he constructed another surrogate mother, this time completely out of wire mesh, again with a rubber nipple and a feeding tube. The eight baby monkeys spent almost all of their waking hours around the terracloth mother, cuddling her, caressing her, getting warm by her, playing on her, perched on her. He took four of the eight and trained them to eat from the surrogate mother, the wire mesh one, and the other surrogate mother, the terracloth one. The ones that were trained to eat from the surrogate mother that was wire mesh, ate from her only, but cuddled, again in the waking hours, the terracloth mother. Then he isolated some of those baby monkeys into just wire mesh cages with wire mesh floors, wire mesh mothers, no cloth at all. They went and fed from the surrogate mother and then cowered in the corner screaming and many of them did not survive. And he understood from looking at the monkeys that for survival, we need more than just food. We need warm touch Soft, cuddly interaction. Why am I sharing that with you? Because here's my plea. Let's not become wire-meshed Christians. What I mean by that is let's not make church just a place we go to get a meal. Because if we come just to listen to a sermon and get spiritual food, well, let's not call it a church. It's really not a body. It's a mouth. But it's not a body. A body is when all of the parts are functioning and working together. And it's not about one part. It's about all the parts growing, learning, giving, and receiving, and receiving.